Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Today we've got a little bit different angle. Uh, the book we're going to talk about is Swanson. And it's the life and times of a Victorian detective. So th- we're, this is covering Donald Sutherland Swanson. And uh, so it's more than just the Ripper. He's uh, a detective uh, in the Metropolitan Police. Um, so we have um, a distinguished guest all the way from the UK yeah. on the line. His name is Adam <laughs> Wood. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Hello there, Al. Thank you for inviting me. Hi there, Mike. Hello, Adam. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you. So now, uh, I, I've noticed in this book here, it's not. This is just about the detective and his whole life. So we're covering a lot more than just the Ripper. Um, sure. So, what first of all got you into writing about this this detective? It, it was, um, to be honest, it was a very uh, lucky circumstance in that um, my background as a, as a uh, the editor of Ripologist magazine, um, which I've been doing for more years than I care to remember. Um, there's a series of articles on all sorts of angles from suspects uh, to the detectives and, and the victims. And I decided to write an article on 
what is known as a sponsor marginalia. It's um, something which I'm sure we'll talk about in detail later. But it's it's some some personal pencil annotations made by Donald Swanson in a private book. And in that in that book, he names the suspect, um, which most people now tend to see. Michael disagree as the prime suspect <laughs> for for the Ripper. But I thought it was an interesting thing. So um, I started researching the history of this document um, and got, you know, got quite far into the article just for publication in the magazine. And, and a mutual friend um, basically said to me, well, you know, the Swanson family still have lots of the documents um, from Donald um, passed on the family. Would you like to meet them? Oh, I said, well, of course, yes, please. So I'm, they didn't live too far from me, luckily. So I met the great grandson of Donald. That's Neville Swanson. Uh, and he just we met up and he had a uh, just a sample folder, really, of the sort of thing that you have. And it was personal correspondence and, you know, copies of police documents and reports. And basically he said, well, you know, would you like to borrow everything and see what we've got? Because we don't really know what's there. So, you know, it started out as an article on this on this Swanson marginalia. But when I saw all the archive material that they had, I, I just realized that although I knew a little bit about Swanson, um, he's not widely known um, in, in the Ripper world, what he did outside of that case. I just thought, well, there's so much material here. He had a, such a fantastic career that I'm going to research everything else and, and see where it takes me. And, and it, six years later, um, the, book, the book is out. So um, that, that was it. So, you know, it's interesting because uh, Jim Swanson, that, that's Neville's father and Donald's grandson. He knew all of the, all of this about his grandfather's career, and he was very keen that they'd have some recognition for the work that Donald had done, but it never had gone anywhere. Um, and I think that having gone through the material, I, I, I obviously recognised that he was right. Um, and, and, and obviously you can see in the book the, the Ripper chapter as such is quite a small amount compared to, to the rest of the career, but it's an important part. Well, I think also, Adam, what I loved about the book is that it, Swanson definitely has a pivotal role because he was the chief inspector uh, during the time of the Ripper murders and that anything that he knew, he knew so much. We don't have those original documents and so any details he has. So what I love about it is, is to me, I'm amazed at how much research, original uh, articles and pictures that you have in here. You, it's filled. It is it is content dense. Thank you. Yeah. And, well, uh, I have to say, Al, um, that, that's probably part of the reason why it took so long to finish. But um, I, I, one of my pet hates is when you, you pick up a book and it's supposedly a biography of a policeman and you get you're on the first page and there's a short paragraph about where he was born and, and, and uh, early life. And then you're still on the first page and he's already joined the Metropolitan Police. Now, that That's, you know, that's not enough to me. I, I, I want to know the background. I want to know what made them become a policeman, what, where the where the family grew up. What shaped that detective, for instance? So I was determined when I was writing this book on Swanson, I was going to definitely look into that. Um, now, Swanson grew up in, in Scotland in a really very, very small, remote town. And I thought, well, what, what would make someone growing up there? His, his father was a brewer. What would make someone growing up there le decide to leave and go to London? You know, it's, it, in those days, in 18, the 1860s, when he left it was a massive undertaking to, to go down to London. There was no guarantee of work or anything at the time for him. So he must have been driven for some, you know, to, to go down and, 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 and start a new career. And of course, when I started looking into that, I thought, well, where did he work initially as a city clerk for, for a year? I looked into the background of that 
employer and, and that series of offices when he joined the police. Why did he join the police? And there happened to be a recruitment drive because there was a, a Athenian bombing a ter- terrorism threat at the time. So then, of course, I had to research that and, and write that up. Um, well, that's what the and I was just going to I was going to interrupt just a little bit uh, right that spot. There's two things. One is you wrote about he had a sister that was in London uh, at the time. So that probably helped him come to London, do you think? I, I think I think absolutely. He, he definitely, you know, he, he had someone on the Condes. It was because he's, he had two sisters in London. Um, they both married English firemen in London. Now, I've yet to discover how they met these two, these two loving firemen, but they, you know, they met it, they met, and, you know, one was, one was a witness to the other's marry, uh, marriage and vice versa. So they lived in the West End of London, and I'm sure, you know, Donald worked as a teacher in Scotland for a while, but it, probably the prospects didn't appeal to him. Um, now there's two, there's two things here. Firstly, did he decide to go to London for work and his sister helped him out? Or, or as you say, there was one sister, Mary, who was pregnant, but her, her husband, died two weeks before she was due to give birth to uh, their third child so the other thing is did the family send donald down to london to help out in that in that family crisis which you know could could well oh. have been the case right well the other thing i loved about the of that particular part is it's not only a history of uh, swanson but it's a history of the met uh, the metropolitan police department and also the the detective division as well and, and all of the ups and downs Yes. Yep. Again, that was that was something that I was, as well as Swanson's background, I was very keen to uh, as I, as I picked out the um, the strands of Swanson's career, and I saw that you know he was involved um, in the detective department. Two week two weeks after this so-called uh, trial of the detectives uh, fraud scandal rocked. Now I thought, well, that that's quite interesting because he was not involved in that. Obviously, he'd only just become a detective after being a uniformed policeman on the beat. But the, the thing is that, that that was part of the Metropolitan Police at the time. So, again, I thought it was important to give that background. You know, what was a detective department like at the time he joined? And, of course, it very soon became the reorganised uh, CID, which he, um, you know, he, he became a leading uh, officer of. So the fall of the detectives you talk about is like 1877. Right. It's like the, the year after he joined a detective division. He didn't get. It was he didn't get sucked two into weeks. That. No, no, because there were very few members of detectives in the department at the time he joined. You know, half of that department got caught up in the corruption. They were, they were on the take. And I think if Swanson would have been perhaps joined six months earlier, he may well have been um, susceptible to that. He was still a young man at the time, so uh, newly married, so he may well have been sort of tempted. But thankfully for him, he was only two weeks in there when when the uh, the whole thing blew up. Ah, so and then you write about that uh, soon after that, around that time, he uh, solved the case or something. But it looks like uh, they noticed that he was he was not part of the the corruption was, part. No, that that's right. That's right. I mean, um, the thing was, without going into too much detail, there was the the detective department at um, Scotland Yard, and those were the detectives that were caught up in corruption. Uh, each each area outside of London and Whitechapel, for instance, where the Ripper murders took place, was a H division. Uh, Swanson was a detective uh, at A division, which was still close to Scotland Yard, but not in that office. So that, okay. as I say, he wasn't involved with that. Um, and it was it was good for him actually because when 
all those officers were were on trial and, and found guilty and went to prison, uh, the new department, the CID, it was under sort of strict observation. You can imagine that um, everybody that worked in that department, you know, the new the new detective department, was under scrutiny, and they needed mm. perhaps fresh detectives, fresh fresh officers coming in that they could trust. Swanson was one of those, so it was quite good because he was able to get promotion quite quickly by proving himself to be, you know, incorruptible as such, or that, um, and and obviously very astute as a detective. Right, right. So the other thing was to me was interesting as well is right at, during the Ripper murders, the we had uh, the commissioner Charles Warren. He seemed to uh, he was not to me he was not too keen on a detective division. But when he left during the Ripper murders and then James Monroe came in, he was uh, more keen to that. So it's, yeah. would that have helped him out? I think that absolutely did. Um, I mean, although, although interestingly, Warren was the, he, he was the um, commissioner who put Swanson in charge of the Ripper case, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But Warren, Warren was brought in as commissioner in 1886 because the previous commissioner, Edmund Henderson, had but been in the role for 18 years, he'd grown very lazy and slack, and the police had basically become completely disorganised. Warren Warren was a really um, well-established and decorated soldier. Uh, he was brought in as a commissioner, basically to to put everything in in good order and, and get the police back uh, in in a good position. So he would, but he never intended to sort of be a long-lasting commissioner. He wanted to get the he, but he, but you, you're quite right, Al. His focus was on the uniformed branch rather than the detectives who he left to his assistant commissioner Monroe. One of the things again about uh, Swanson why I was really intrigued about your book uh, with these details is because of the background of the detective division during the, the Whitechapel murders and you also make a comment about the relationship between Scotland Yard or the Metropolitan Police Department and the City of London Police Department. That's right. And then and what about that a little bit? Well, the, um, it's interesting because in the early days of the Metropolitan Police, um, as, as I recount in the, the early chapters, um, there was talk very early on that the Met should absorb the City of London Police. Uh, and it was a very small force in, in the city, but there was, there was massive um, uproar in government. They didn't want that to happen. Uh, separate, separate budget, separate um, home office departments, all this sort of thing. Uh, and that went all the way through. So there was some sort of friction between the two departments, the Metropolitan Police and the City of London Police. But I think there was a feeling, certainly through some of the um, the city detectives at the time, that oh, if if we were investigating the Ripper murders, then we'd have solved it by now. You know, the the Metropolitan Police aren't any good. <laughs> and all, all this yeah. sort of thing is a superiority thing. But of course, when Catherine Eddowes was killed in Mitre Square in the City of London territory, they were brought into it. So. I think at that time there's there's been some discussion with with Ripper some Ripper authors that there was this still ongoing sort of animosity between the two, but I, I don't think that was the case. I, I think that they were professional policemen. They recognised that to work together because they were under scrutiny of the newspapers and and the public and and the government to get the job done. Uh, and Swanson uh, met every night. As, as you said earlier, he, he he was in Scotland Yard looking through all the material. At the end of every evening of doing that, he had to go down to um, Whitechapel and met with the City of London counterpart there to sort of, you know, c- compare notes and, and then sort of go over the, prepare the next day's research, really, uh, uh, an investigation. So they did work well together. And um, 
it's funny because Swanson didn't write anything about the investigation at all, but mm. some of his um, some of his uh, city counterparts did write that in their reports that um, it was Inspector Sagar met met with Swanson every night. So as I say, so they worked well together. Um, and then, he, you know, sometimes you hear in, in recent books that there's there was this, as I say, this animosity between the two forces. But I, I don't think that was the case in reality, especially after the Eddowes murder. Mm. Well, exactly. I mean, beforehand, I suspect that there before the, the city of London police were drawn into the investigation. I think they probably thought, well, as I say, it's a little bit like the, um, Thomas Burns, the, the American uh, policeman in New York, said that if it happened there, he could have solved it. I think the city of London yeah, police were pretty right. much the same um, until until they were involved and they realised they couldn't. So it was a different, different, entirely different thing then. Well, what's uh, also intriguing to me about Swanson, and uh, soon I'd like to ask about the marginalia, but the uh, yeah. is that he must have been just this professional, didn't talk to people about it, and that's why we didn't hear so much about him is because he was just a man that you know kept kept quiet. That's a, I, I think that's exactly exactly right. He 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 did he did his job. He was a professional policeman. He did his job. Went home at the end of the day um, and didn't tell anyone. Apparently, according to his his grandson Jim Swanson, who 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 was who knew him for twelve years before he passed away, he didn't tell even the family about the work he was doing. You know, obviously it was they were aware that he was working on the Ripper case at that time, but any other part of his career, he, he just didn't mention. He kept he kept notes and kept. Uh, um, in the early part of his career, up to about 1882, he kept personal memorandum ledgers, and, and they are still in the archives. So I was very lucky to see his comments on some of those early cases. But interestingly, when he got to the 1880s and he was working on some bigger, more delicate cases, he didn't write anything. He stopped writing those ledgers. And I just wonder whether he sort of realised that the sort of thing he was working on was too delicate a nature to really put down in writing for for anyone to see. And he certainly did he certainly didn't speak to any newspapers after he retired. Um, he retired as a superintendent of the CID, which is the top detective at Scotland Yard. He couldn't Which means he higher. must have been brilliant. Yeah, I, I means... think I think I think it's a combination of two things there. He was he was he was fantastic detective, but he was also uh, very professional. So he, he didn't tell tales out of school, he didn't talk to the newspapers, which some other detectives did, and I'm sure they were overlooked for those promotions because of that, because there was a there was a Home Office directive that that was breaking the rules, really. A detective couldn't talk about their work, even in retirement. Right. And then the, the, the thing that uh, is, I think, to me, where it connects with Swanson is the, the marginalia. Uh, and you, yeah. could, you could talk more about that than me. Well, the, I, think, I think you said a moment ago that... Um, Swanson was hardly known known about at all until the marginalia was discovered, and, and I think that's absolutely right, because the, the newspapers at the time of the Ripper case were they were down in Whitechapel. They, they were talking to the detectives there, Frederick Aberline, uh, Edmund Reed. The, these 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 detectives, very very capable detectives, they 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 came, became not quite famous, and Aberline for a long time, and probably still today, if you ask the man on the street who who was the detective hunting Jack the Ripper, they'll say Frederick Aberline. Because that's the yeah. name that's in the newspapers every day. Swanson, Swanson was operating out of an office in Scotland Yard, and he didn't he didn't talk to anybody at all. It was some news, you know. You don't get any interviews with him. You don't get any comments that Swanson's following a lead or anything like that. Um, occasionally, you may you may get something a few years later that 
um, for instance, the Mary Piercy uh, double murder. He investigated that, and um, the newspaper reported, or Inspector Swanson, um, who who had charge of the Ripper investigation. But that's it. There's nothing more than that. So, consequently, all the way through to the time when the um, home of uh, the National Archives files were open and people could read the Ripper reports and see that Swanson's name were at the bottom of it, the bottom of most of those reports to the Home Office. Uh, it just wasn't known. It was just assumed it was all Aveline. Um, and then basically when his two daughters died in 18, end of 1880, uh, they were both in their 90s. Um, and Jim Swanson, the grandson I've referred to, they, they had to go and empty the house out to take all the, basically do a house clearance while it was, so they could sell the property. Um, when they got back to, to Jim's house, they went through everything they'd found. And in this uh, linen chest, apparently it was a big uh, chest, which they used to keep in the hallway with all their sheets and stuff in. In the bottom of that was Donald Swanson's papers and personal address book and uh, his copies of some of his colleagues' memoirs. Um, one of these books was um, by his former boss, Sir Robert Anderson, who was the assistant right. commissioner. That's called The Lighter Side of My, of My Official Life. And that's the book where Anderson says that the suspect was was a Polish Jew. He was caged in an asylum. Um, and, our, you know, it was a, it was a, a, it was known it was known that he was a ripper, but we couldn't prove it. So that that book um, was among perhaps about six or seven other books in, in Swanson's library. Uh, when Jim Swanson flicked through the book, he found these pencil notes, which is the Swanson marginalia, and he describes, or he basically expands on what Anderson has written about the Polish Jew suspect, uh, giving more information as to what happened to him. And then on, on the end paper, right at the end of the book, he, he writes a continue, continuation, and he gives the full breakdown as to, you know, the suspect was identified, uh, he, he, he was taken and watched night and day by the city CID. He was taken to Whitechapel Workhouse and then he was taken, uh, infirmary, then he was taken to Colney Hatch where he died. And then he said, he writes a line, Kuzminski was the suspect. So that, that is where the whole thing about Kuzminski being, being the prime suspect comes from, basically just, just from those pencil marginalia and his private copy. And he was um, very, quite literate as well. So to me, how he spelled it is likely what uh, the name was. So, uh, to me, well, I mean, I, yeah. Well, th th there's a question about that, isn't there? Because it's it's K O S with an I on the end, and and several several times it's written K, K O Z, sometimes with a Y yeah. on the end. But I think I think Swan Swanson or, or any detective who's working on the case would have been careful how they uh, how they spelt a name because you know if they if they had an official file there, newspapers obviously not quite so careful. They would perhaps taking notes down um, as people are talking to them. And it's a little bit like the census returns where you, you misspell something because you don't check the spelling. But I, I think you're right. I think Swanson would have been more careful with uh, the spelling and the phrasing of, of what he was writing. Right, right. Well, how well were the police trained back then? Like, what was their technique in doing these crimes? Do you mean in, ter in terms of the, the uniformed or, or the detectives? Either. I mean, especially, um, like, what would happen in an actual crime? And how, how well was Swanson trained um, as a detective? Well, in the, uh, in the first instance, when, when, the, when a, a, a candidate applied to join the Met, uh, they went through the physical, they went through a physical examination and then they had to do a, a, a writing and arithmetic 
um, examination. This is all on one day, just to sort of prove that they had the basics in order to uh, to be able to join. Then they, when they were accepted, they'd go and do three months drill training, which again harks back to the uh, the military side of things, and make sure that they could uh, they could walk upright and they could do the uh, the, <laughs> the recommended so many uh, miles in a day and that sort of thing. So they became almost like a, a an army. That's the uniformed side of it. They'd go and get once those three weeks are up, they'd go and get their uniform, then to be assigned to a division, uh, and then they'd have to sort of take part in um, in beat walking. Um, walking. So did his fair share of that, and his initial beat was around Westminster, which is like Trafalgar Square and Downing Street, all that sort of area. Um, but when he, when he, whether that was a reason for joining the detective department is because he, he was sort of fed up with um, wearing a uniform, and in those days you had to wear a uniform even on your, even on your days off. So there was no there was no opportunity for um, you know nine to five job and that sort of thing. It was hard work, uh, and I suspect that you, you know the detective department probably was getting a little bit little bit busier. It wasn't formed until 1842, which was uh, 13 years after the, the the main uniform branch. Um, so by the time of the the uh, corruption case, it had only been in existence sort of 25 years, um, and I think it was sort of gaining a little bit of glamour, that sort of thing. They worked they worked on some of the, um, the sort of famous cases, and there's one which um, just after Swanson joined was the um, the theft of the Gainsborough painting Duchess of Devonshire. Uh, that that was a sort of a, a, oh, yeah. a well big thing, and it was it wasn't recovered for 25 years, and Swanson was involved in that later on in his career. Um, talk about it later, but in terms of detection, they they didn't really have any have any great training in those early days. They'd they'd they'd, they'd be you know they'd be uh, again they'd have to go through a test and sort of do I think sort of rudimentary things you know re- reading and writing, and then probably there was like a logic test. But really, it was down to aptitude. I think um, one of the few officers who who was involved in the detective department in those corruption days was. Um, Frederick Dolly Williamson, and he was a very, very famous detective who had a, a, a great career. He was one of the few who sort of survived the, um, the, the the finger of suspicion, if you like. And he he, I think, sort of took a bit of a took a, took Swanson under his wing when he when he joined and became his mentor in a way, um, because you you see in some some of those cases such as the um, the uh, civil upro- uprisings in. Um, the 18, in 1887 and 1886, and the Fenian again, the second dynamite campaign in the mid 1880s, it's Swanson who's going around with Williamson, looking at these cases. So I suspect that in Swanson's case, he'd learnt a lot from Dolly Williamson, um, and that was mostly for experience rather than sort of any examinations or anything like that. Or they didn't have classrooms as such to do uh, do any sort of tutoring for detection. Most of it was, uh, as I say ability raw ability and and learning from from experience from older officers so uh probably chief inspector little child was his contemporary at the time I, I, well, yeah he was and he, interestingly um about little child when when i uh was doing some research into swanson's early days in the met it, it turns out i think little child joined the police i think within the same three-month period as swanson did they both went to a division uh-huh. as i say around westminster so they they i'm sure they knew each other Little Child and Swanson, probably as far back as the late 1860s. Right. Yeah. Well, I just wonder, so 
how did they arrive at suspects back then? Like, what was it? They didn't have fingerprints. They didn't have um, hair analysis or DNA and any of that stuff. So what would lead him and other detectives to decide who their suspect was for, let's say, um, you know, Jack the Ripper or, or the railway murders or any of that stuff? Well, uh, in, in a case such as the... Um the, the Lefroy Mapleton railway murder that, that you mentioned, that was, uh, that, that was quite obvious because, you know, you've got a guy here who's, who's, there's a body found on a railway line, um, and there's also a guy who's found coming off, coming out of the carriage on his own covered in blood. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, that, that was quite obvious yeah, really. But, right. but in Swanson's case, it was interesting because although Lefroy had been, had been sort of escorted 
had a bit of a tip off and this is one one way that a detective would would find a, a criminal will be be through an informant and this is what happened in the Lefroy case you know he, he went and, and they sort of did some surveillance made sure he was there and and uh, went, and, went and arrested him but sometimes it would be informants sometimes it, it would be you know little things like sort of observations um but you know really in terms of sort of identifying a suspect in terms of the ripper case you know you were relying on you you do your um house to house uh questioning in you know if there's a body been found in hanbury street and in chapman's case they'd, they'd go around all the neighbors so has anyone seen anything in the last sort of 12 hours or whatever and then piece together a report as to what the witnesses had seen and and that sort of thing and then you could identify uh, who was pe- a person of interest. But in the Ripper case, of course, you had um, so many people keen to be, to be the ones to uh, to identify the killer. You had all the hoax letters. You know, they they I don't think any of them were really from the Ripper, but they still had to be investigated and, and written off as, as sort of dead ends as such. Um, but sometimes you may find someone that was a, a person of interest. And sure, Mike can explain how. He's, he's t- the suspect Tumblety, uh, yeah. came, came, came to prominence at, at the time. You know, obviously, as far as Ripper researchers uh, are, aware, uh, are aware, it only came um, much later through, through a, a letter well after the, uh, the, the, the thing by, um, by Little Child who mentioned uh, Tumblety. Yeah. So, but at the time, he, he, must have come to the, uh, he must have come to the police's attention in, in some way. Right, hmm. right. And then uh, the other person, uh, Sir Melville McNaughton, uh, you yes. had uh, the memorandum. You've done some research with that. How was the relationship between Swanson and McNaughton? It's diff- <laughs> again, that's very difficult <laughs> to say because there's nothing. There's nothing that I've I found apart from one one little thing which I'll mention in a moment that that sort of gives them any indication they're on good terms. With, with Swanson and Robert Anderson, he's, he's, he's boss, you know, there was, there's evidence that they sent each other Christmas cards and they sent, you know, they, Anderson would occasionally send a copy of his book to Swanson. So they did have a relationship outside of the, uh, the office as such and after they both retired. But in McNaughton's case, there's certainly nothing in the Swanson family archive that shows any correspondence. Um, the, uh, Donald Swanson's personal address book, which, which I'm lucky to own, it's got Anderson's address in there, and it's got Abilene's address in there, but there's nothing from McNaughton. So Interesting. I, I don't think that they were they were particularly close. I'm sure they had a good working relationship. And I think, as I say in the book, and as An, uh, as McNaughton has written in his memoirs, um, when he was talking about the Lefroy case, when when he joined the police in 1889, he he discovered that one of his officers at CID was the man who who arrested Lefroy. And of course, he's talking about Swanson. So he went. He went to Swanson. And he learned all the facts about that case. So I suspect that's exactly what he did with the Ripper investigation. You know, he knew Rip, uh, Swanson was in charge of that case. So he just went to his office and and, and went through all the files and, and and the notes and everything. But right, one interesting yeah. thing, which I think is a bit of an insight in Anderson's book, um, where the Swanson marginalia appears, there's another there's another part earlier on, and he just talks. He, uh, Anderson just writes about. One of one of the um, I can't remember the exact wording, but he says one of the contemporaries uh, had a bit of a had a had a bit of, um, little bit of problem with with the commissioner of Home Office, and he had a, he was censured. And he doesn't name who he is, but in the margin, Swanson Swanson writes in pencil, uh, 
Chief Constable McNaughton. So he's not, oh. he's, he's not, he wasn't at all bothered with uh, naming the, the officer who got, into, got himself into trouble. So I think, I think if he was, you know, if they were good friends, he may have refrained from doing that. But Oh, I get you, right? Yeah. <laughs> The uh, and then uh, it looks like now that uh, Mapleton case, the railroad murder, that was uh, towards the end of Swanson's career. Is that no, correct? That, no, that was actually in 1881. That was, that oh, was quite, okay. quite early in his well, five years after he became a detective. Um, and it was interesting because that was that probably was the case that that, that really accelerated his career because okay. um, before then, while he, while he was I'm not saying just another inspector. Um, certainly when, when he arrested Lefroy, because it was such, because Lefroy was on the run for 11 days, and it's interesting because that, that case is the first time that, um, a likeness of a, a, few, a wanted man was printed in a national newspaper. Um, so that, that, that's quite a well known case, and of course, with Swanson being the, uh, detective who, who arrested him and took him into the police station, his name was then in all the national newspapers. So the next, the next, case that Swanson goes on to, which is a body snatching case up in Scotland. Um, and I think literally a week after Lefroy was executed, Swanson's now working on this body snatching case. When he arrives in Aberdeen, where, where the uh, thing took place, uh, the, the local newspaper reports that um, the locals looked on, as he stepped off the train, the locals looked on Inspector Swanson with awe as the capture of Lefroy. So, oh, so they, yeah. you know, they, they'd read all about his exploits in capturing Lefroy. And of course, the next thing, he's suddenly in their town, and he's a bit of a celebrity. And I think it went from there. You see Swanson's name much more in in the newspapers then because he's 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 well known. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Something interesting is uh, that I was intrigued about is my very first article that uh, you had published for me in, in the Riparologist magazine, and I think it was 2010. It was on. Uh, was, it, was it really? Yeah. <laughs> it was on. Yeah. I know. It was on the uh, the Philosopher's Stone, and then you you write some stuff about Swanson with the Philosopher's Stone. That's right. Yes, Edward, Edward Pinter, his name was. The, okay. Um, um, yeah, that that that's that, that's a great. I think that's a great a great case because that that was a case where um, an instance where uh, they they caught caught him out through um, surreptitious surveillance, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. Basically. The, the chap called, um, his name was Edward Pinter, but he called himself the modern alchemist. Um, bit, bit grand. He, he'd go around to, uh, uh, West End posh jewelers saying that if they, you know, if they gave him a certain amount of gold by using alchemy and the, uh, the philosopher's stone and all this sort of, uh, secret, secret recipe, if you like, he could, he could turn that, uh, thousand, thousand pounds worth of gold into ten thousand pounds. Um, and then if he if you gave him ten thousand, he turned it to a million pounds of gold. And some people were <laughs> were sort yeah. of uh, sucked into it. It's obviously a scam. Um, and and, he, and at one point he uh, he went to this uh, jeweller, quite a well-known jeweller who supplied diamonds and, and things to um, countesses and, and and earls and sort of thing. So uh, his name was Edward Streeter. And when when Pinter went in to see him, obviously he knew that it was. It was obviously a complete scam. He went straight to Scotland Yard and Swanson went with a, a young sergeant called Frank Frost, who became a very oh, uh, yes. famous detective later on. Um, they, they went along um, to this sort of arranged meeting as a set up with Streeter and Pinter. Um, 
and, and it's, I could just visualise it because Swan, Swanson and uh, Swanson and Frost are hiding are hiding in a cupboard, um, watching what's going on. <laughs> you could just visualise. You know, it's it's not a case of oh, we have reason to believe it was. Let, let's catch him red-handed. Um, well, and then we'll call and Frost. also, and yeah, also, uh, I I remember Frost. Uh, he was known he could he could uh, bend a penny with his fingers. Rip right. like a, he was a powerful guy. Just think that's you, yeah, yeah. He, he certainly wasn't someone you'd want to argue with. I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, no, I think. And, and what they did in this case is that uh, the, um, the the modern alchemist uh, basically said, "Well, here's all the ingredients. You know, you give me the gold, and I'll put the chemicals in." But but the smell and the smoke is so intense, we need to leave the room while the while the magic is working. So he's he's done this. It's ma- this massive black vapor has appeared. They've all gone out, and of course he's he's obviously said, "Well, I'll go in and check how things are going." And while he's gone in, he's just sort of been removing items of gold from from the pan. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, and, and I think it, it eventually, you know, he, he was so brazen though it, it, it did make me smile because when he was a, when he was arrested by Swanson and Frost and taken to Bow Street Magistrates Court, uh, he he basically said to the judge, "Well, if you let me um, set up here, I'll prove that I can do it." And so, well, well, that's you know that's 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 pretty brazen. I think the judge said something along the lines of it's uh, it was um, it was it was uh, bad enough smell in the courtroom as it was. He didn't need any more editing to it. Yeah. Do you remember what year that was? Uh, from top of my head, I think eighteen ninety five, ninety six. Okay. Okay. So that was after the the white. That was after after that. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, it's interesting because it goes back to what we were saying earlier. About how did the detective become a detective? Because Swanson uh, Frost was the sergeant at the time, but he worked quite a lot with with Swanson, and certainly later in Swanson's career, you see that he becomes a mentor to Frost in the same way that Williamson was to Swanson. Um, and obviously, eventually, when Swanson retires, I think Frost becomes a superintendent at CID in his place. So it's that okay. working relationship there. What was the biggest surprise you got when you were researching Swanson? That. that that is a good. That is a good question. It's. Uh, it's. I, I think probably. Overall, overall, I was probably mostly surprised with how how much material still existed from the family because you know you you couldn't. I don't think that will ever happen again on, on my next book. Um, I don't think I'll ever find anything like that. But in terms of um, the, the biggest single surprise. I think, I think it, 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 was, it was satisfying, but it was a bit of an eye-opener. Um, when I was researching the, um, the Gainsborough painting, Duchess of Devonshire, it would basically been taken and stored in America for the 25 years it had gone missing. Um, basically, the Pinkerton Agency got involved with the, oh, okay. um, with the return, uh, but they were liaising with Swanson, who by this time was a superintendent, obviously in charge at the CID, um, and I knew that I knew that that was the case. And, and uh, when the Pinkertons confirmed that they had the genuine painting and that you know this was the amount of money that they wanted and everything like this, they were they were tele- telegram going back to the Scotland Yard and the Pinkerton office. Um, now I've I've researched it from from this side, so from the um, Scotland Yard side. But I thought, well, for completeness, I ought to see if I can get hold of the Pinkerton file. And luckily, mm. it's not not that long. Well, at the time I wrote it, it wasn't that long. Been been basically made available at the Library of Congress. So I, I I contacted them through the website and said, well, I'm interested in this one particular file. Here's the reference. 
how can I go about getting a copy? And I did, you know, I had no plans to go over, so I was thought, well, if they won't supply a copy, I'll have to see if I know anyone in the area who are happy to go along. Um, but they said, well, no, we can digitise it and send you a PDF for this fee. So, oh. great. So I, I paid the fee, and about two weeks later, I got a PDF, opened up, the, had the cover file, opened up the next page. The first thing I saw was a telegram from Swanson to the Vincents. Um, wow. Basically, basically saying, well, we, you know, all the terms are agreed and the owner the, the, of, of the painting is going to be over at this time and everything. It was just, it, it, in terms of information, it wasn't earth shattering, but it was just fantastic to, you know, get that thing from America, from the Pinkertons. And then the first thing you see is, is the guy who, who I'm writing the book about. Right. So right. Yeah, that, that was very good. So what kind of cases did he typically do back then? Like what was going on in London when he was a cop? Uh, well, that, that again is another interesting thing because uh, when you look at the whole of the book, 35-year um, career from 1868 to 1903 when he retired, as well as the, the development of the Met and the detection methods that they, you know, you can see the evolution of that. It's, there's a lots of evolution of, of the types of crimes that are being committed and it would be sort of simple, in, in the early days, it would be simple forgeries, um, uh, palming false coins in shops, you know, that sort of thing that people would be, be doing. And there, occasionally there'd be, you know, be sort of murders or there'd be kidnappings and this sort of thing. Those are few and far between. It was probably quite mundane in those early days. Um, but certainly while he was on the beat, it would be a, it would be a case of, um, preventing premises being robbed and all those very, very boring things that the uniformed uh, officers have to do. But as a detective, as I said, you know, he could he could be working uh, on on the Lefroy case or a body snatching case, but then the next week he may be given the file, which means he has to go and look at someone who's been uh, defrauding old ladies out of their life savings. It's just the way, it, you know, the way it was for uh, uh, a detective, and as I'm sure it, as I'm sure it is now. But when he became a detective, um, a, a, a superintendent rather, he, he did very little for on the on the street or visiting premises. It was it was completely directing his chief inspectors under him to sort of go and undertake uh, investigations and that sort of thing. So I guess it's probably what he was being groomed to do all the way along, working underneath Williamson, taking charge of the Ripper case, taking charge of the dynamite thing. It was probably being groomed to be that superintendent supervisory role all along really what do you hope people get um, after they read the book and they walk away what do you want them to take with them i i think it's more than anything i, I want them to realize that that the Whitechapel murders didn't didn't happen in a vacuum you know and i think there's too much tunnel vision you know people are blinkered saying well in 1887 right. this happened and in 1889 that happened and then the file closed you know these people didn't just appear out of nowhere they didn't magically there wasn't a chief inspector swanson who, who magically appeared and he never had a life before so what i want is if nothing else is obviously i want people to be entertained and learn something about not only swanson but the met police but i also want them to think well you know there's everything's in a context in in a context really um and and that that i think does help does help give information about uh, any particular case the investigation of the Ripper murders or, or suspects, why do these things come come to pass? Because, as I say, they don't happen on their own. There's there's a cause and effect of everything, and that's really what I want people to, to take away. Now, what I, what I, oh, I'm sorry. 
I was going to say, now you're the editor of the Ripperologist magazine. That's right. And uh, so tell 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 the listeners what is the Ripperologist magazine and um, how they can maybe pick one up. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it, it's the good the good news is that it's completely free. So, so, yeah. So that's yeah. Uh, that's what I mean. It, it, previously, in, I mean, the Ripperologist magazine has been going since uh, 1994. I've been on the editorial team since 1997. Uh, which I, I can't believe really, but um, in, in, th- in those early days, it, it was a printed um, circulation magazine. You subscribe so much a year, and you get si- um, six issues, and that'd be posted out to you. Uh, of course, after a while, um, it just became so expensive to to mail out all these printed copies that we sort of took a decision, uh, and each each issue was getting larger and larger, up to 100 pages. We just sort of decided as, as a team that we, you know, we just couldn't on the current subscription rate we couldn't sustain printing and mailing out this number of heavy magazines and um, so we were faced with a choice of increasing the subscription cost or uh, turning it to to uh, an electronic magazine this is at the time where people started to do that so we we basically we canvassed the subscribers and said well do you want to um would you you know would you still subscribe if it was uh, an easing or not um um, and people in the main were sort of very supportive, so he went that way. And that was great because it, it took away any constrictions about page count or anything like that. But but what we do um, now, it's we, we decided to completely take away the, the subscription costs and we just mail it out to anyone who sends their email address to subscribe. So we've ended up with something like about 2,500 readers of each issue now. Um, oh. Supposed to be every two months, but sometimes real life gets in the way and it well you writing that well, you know one, well, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things I like about this is uh, I have to apologize Adam my next article I'm going to propose is over 10,000 words already so no, that's your, fine. Well, your fellow that's editor uh, Jonathan Mankey's teases me about that just, <laughs> <laughs> well that's, that's the that's the next issue sorted out then <laughs> okay <laughs> but but basically you know obviously the, um, the mag goes on and, and, and people are still interested in the case but um, and, and, and generally, it sort of follows a format. There's 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 three or four uh, new researched articles um, about any aspect, really. We, we, we'll take anything which is well researched, um, hopefully referenced, uh, um, so it sort of shows that uh, you know where the work has come from. Um, and then we we occasionally do it from the archives because we've been going so long. There's there's always fantastic work which people who have recently subscribed or more recently don't always know that we've done you know we've carried a work from um from the past so occasionally we'll we'll republish something which is relevant uh to current thinking and then then we have some things from how howard brown who's the um, proprietor of jtrforums.com he runs yeah. a column then we do the, the latest book reviews in fiction and non-fiction so it's it's quite a, a good rounding magazine and i think what is what is interesting when you look back at back issues and today's work it, it really is, I think, a reflection on how research and, and different thinking on the Ripper cases has come along, really, because in the early days, there was loads of articles on, on Joe Barnett as a suspect mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And obviously now it's, it's more, more along the lines of Tom Whitty and Kuzminski, which is more the current, the current sort of thinking. So it's a good reflection on that. But what I, what I like is certainly with social media, um, you, you find that there's people we, we think, well, we've got all the subscribers we're ever going to get. Who, how many people want to get a, a Jack the Ripper magazine in their inbox? But then, you know, every issue I, I put a post up on Facebook saying, well, this, um, the magazine's coming out next week. 
if you don't subscribe, go to repologist.co.uk and there's a form on there. And in every issue, there's there's another 40, 50 people sign up, you know, haven't heard of it before. So that, so that's great news. Hmm. Now, I, I, now I'm seeing that you also do uh, what you're editor of the Police History Society Journal. Now, yes. what is that? Well, uh, again, that that's that's one of those sort of lucky quirks of fate. In the um, there, there's a there's an international group called the Police History Society, and they've been going for many many years, longer than the magazine, uh, Reprologist magazine, I think. Um, but because of my work on Reprologist as as the editor, and I also do the artwork. My, my background is a graphic designer and book publisher one of the um the chaps who subscribes i've known for 20 years he's also the treasurer of the police history society he's a, he's a retired serving policeman um and he he basically approached me the previous editor has had to step down uh from that journal and said well you know with my knowledge or in, uh, an interest in police history uh, specifically victorian stuff would i would i be interested in taking on that that role now that that's only that's only like a um a, a once a year sort of full printed eighty to hundred page thing. So it's not that involved as far as I'm concerned compared to reprologist or book writing. But it's fascinating because where I'd gone into it looking at um initially you know, can almost track my, my interest from from the Ripper investigation into Victorian policing, then into Edwardian policing. That 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 magazine that, that journal completely opens my eyes because they've got they've got things like um policing in hong kong in the 1930s you know some things you wouldn't even consider but it's part of police history and i think it it, it that that's it, history is so important above over and above crime in itself but you can you, you know you can learn from that and the different policing methods so that that is something which you know again it's it's a labor of love and um i sort of almost like volunteer to do it but it's it's it, again it's like an education for me um, with the, so that's, with the police history saying, society thing, yeah. I was saying is uh, also publisher for Mango Books. Yeah. And uh, and when you look through all the the books there, it's not just Ripper books. It's uh, true crime. It's a lot of the things that you're talking about. I think that's it. But uh, uh, Mango Books only came around because when I started writing Swanson, and I knew it was going to be a big book, I thought, well, if I take this to a publisher, to another publisher, they're going to say you need to lose half of it. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't right. want to do that. I didn't want to do that. So I thought I'll I'll self-publish it. But because of my background in graphic design and you know printing contacts and that sort of thing, I thought well I'll do it for myself. If nothing else, I'll just self-publish it. Um, yeah. But my 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 uh, design company is called Mango. So I just thought well, I'll do Mango Books. But then Neil Bell, who who's um, as you know is a great researcher on on police history, especially in the um, Ripper case, he he said, well, I didn't know, I didn't know you were going to go into publishing. I've got an idea for a book. Would you do that? And I thought, well, while I'm still writing Swanson, <laughs> I'll I'll do that and have a practice. So we did that. That went well. And then someone else came up and said, well, I, I didn't know you were a publisher. I've got a book <laughs> on, the, on, on the craze. Will, will you do yeah. that? And, and even Paul just, Beck, too. Yeah, exactly right. So it's gone from there. I think I've published close on 30 books now. And it got to a point where I just didn't have any time to write Swanson. I, and last year, I just thought, well, I just got to, I just got to not take any any more sub- submissions for Mango Books till I finish my own thing um, <laughs> and go there. But yeah, Paul 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 Begg was very very lucky and honoured with that really because he's very famous book, The Jack the Ripper to Z. It is, it's I think in hard hard format. It came out in 2010, mm-hmm. and it was 
as a nature of that book, it's sort of out of date almost straight away. Um, I know they did an updated Kindle one, but but Paul approached me saying, well, we're looking to get team back back to uh, completely revise this in a different format. And uh, and would you be interested in publishing it? Well, if there's one if there's one book I sort of thought, decided I'm not going to I'm going to close Mango Books, that'd probably be it really. But right, right. I don't intend to do that, but that's that's a great honour. That's a great honour to be you know approached with a book like that where it could go to any mainstream publisher. And they'd be delighted to take it on, I think. So thank yeah. you to Paul if you're listening. Hmm. Yeah. So now, um, do you have a website as well that people can go and find you and find out more about what you do? <clears throat> well, the, 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 the best place to go to is mangobooks.co.uk. That, that, talks, that talks about uh, the book publishing side of things. I'm in the process of setting up. Now Swanson's out, and I'm working on other projects. So I've been booked to give talks and interviews elsewhere. I'm in the process of setting up a website. Um, to promote myself, if you like. But there is a Facebook page, Adam Wood Author, which is in early stages if people want to go there. Um, if you want to find out about Reprologist magazine, then go to reprologist.co.uk. If you just want to find out about Swanson, you can go to donaldswanson.co.uk and there's information there and a, and a link to a Facebook page where I, I post uh, daily updates or, or, or every other day I post a, a short extract from the book um, which give, give a flavor of, of what's going on in there. Fantastic. Uh, so now we'll have your book up on our website. We'll have your Excellent. information Thank you. as well, so people can go to it if they're listening. Um, again, this has been really interesting, and, and uh, we appreciate you coming on. No, and, thank you uh, very much. So our guest oh, yeah, absolutely. Our guest has been Adam Wood, and we're talking about the book Swanson. It's the life and times of a Victorian detective. Again, thank you. Thanks very much, Al. Thank you, Mike. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.
I'll be back.